0: Uh, This Sunday brings us firmly into the green season, which is the longest season in the liturgical year. And actually it's the green season because we wear green. But it's the Sundays after Pentecost. And so this is the second Sunday after Pentecost. And uh, as you read in your bulletin, I reproduce from uh, Cynthia Black. Uh, In uh, meeting the liturgical year, I can't remember the exact term. She says, This is the time that the preacher focuses on, not all preachers, but (laughs) our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another through our prayers, the sacraments and life in the body of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the church and its mission. So the Green Sundays are also the time, it's, it's often referred to as the teaching season. And you hear me say all the time that it's about discipleship, the nature, cost, and ways and means of being a Christian disciple in every age. And so reading the biblical, the readings from the Bible for this Sunday, two of them were important to me. Uh, we had a choice uh, for the first reading, either from First Samuel or from Genesis, and I decided to read Genesis because it's a great story about Adam and Eve, and it affords the opportunity to say some things. My uh, New Testament professor, or one of them in the Shoda House, used to say that it isn't as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. And so it's important for us to have some understanding of this. I wish more people read the Bible. Even Episcopalians don't read the Bible, although our prayer book is uh, a high percentage of the Book of Common Prayer is from the biblical text. Stephen Prothero: Religious Literacy: It's a book I recommend. This is one of the most religious countries in the West. And it is also one of the most religiously ignorant countries in the West about religion. When people are polled as to what is the most uh, frequently quoted saying from the Bible, most people respond, The Lord helps those who help themselves. (laughs) Right? People who have some acquaintance with the Bible or are baseball or football fans will have seen the most quoted passage in the Bible from the bleachers hung out over the side. John 3.60 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. God helps those who help themselves isn't in the Bible. It's from Benjamin Franklin. Just so you can amaze your friends. So it's important to talk a little bit about how these things get together. So you're going to need to bear with me because this week I was kind of on a jag about all this and I want to say some things about Genesis and about the gospel and how it's put together. Mark's gospel today talks about casting out demons. It talks about the devil. There's another name for the devil, Beelzebub, in this text. And then he says some things about the greatest sin. And he says some things about family. And so we need to come to grips with each of these sections. The fancy term for this, by the way, if you really want to amaze your friends, are Pericopes. So in Genesis, we have Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are generic names. They mean mankind and womankind. Adam means come from the earth. So in the story today, it tells us that uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were hiding because God was walking around at the time of the evening breeze. The Pentateuch, or the Torah, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, had four sources that were used to compile these books. The Yahwist strain, the Elohist strain, the priestly strain and the Deuteronomist strain. So today we hear in this story from Genesis 3, the Yahwist strain. And why would we say that? Because God is walking around. God is anthropomorphized in these readings. That's a fancy word for saying, he's like a human being. Walking around. Elsewhere in, in the Yahwist uh, strain, uh, we have... God walking around, and when everybody's in the ark, and Noah said, We're ready, he comes up and closes the door of the ark. So God is walking around in the cool evening breeze, and he sees Adam and Eve, and he said, Why are you hiding? And Adam says that he was naked and he was afraid he felt shame so God asks him uh, how he knew this how do you know that you're naked Uh, and he said did you eat from the tree in the garden that I told you not to eat from so Adam passes the buck and he said well she gave me the fruit from it to eat so I ate And Eve, passing the buck, said, The serpent beguiled me. And so I ate. Let me just say a word. I haven't done it. I preached this now this third time today. Um, The tree of the forbidden fruit, forbidden knowledge. So you need to ask yourself, I think, the question. I ask myself this on a daily basis. Is there anything I don't need to know? My morals and ethics professor in seminary used to ask us all the time in in our classes that we took from him. Is there any information, is there anything we don't need to know? Is there anything we shouldn't know? And it also means that if you can do something, should you do it? That's the question. And that never goes away with human beings. So just hold that there. And uh, we talk about now the serpent. And we talk about Adam and Eve that are generic terms. And remember this story was written after the fact. So the great question is, uh, what is the role of the serpent? This This is a reading that requires us to understand something about what is known as biblical interpretation. Because sometime after this, Jews interpreted the serpent as the source of evil. In the text, the serpent or the snake is the source of temptation. They were tempted to do something they were told not to do and they did it. So that explains to the, the people that f- from out of which these writings grew that why do people wear clothes? Why does the snake crawl on its belly? And why do we feel shame? Because somewhere humanity got off the rails it also has something to do with our sexuality. They were naked. What does all this mean in the story? So we move then from this story about the tempter. By the way, I say this over and over again when you read the word Satan in the Bible, either in the Hebrew Bible or, or the Greek or the New Testament, it means advocate. It doesn't mean the devil. The meaning of the word originally is the advocate. So, for example, this isn't a very happy story, but in the book of Job, the Satan says to God, here's a righteous man down here on earth. I bet if you afflict him and strike him with the worst things that could happen to anybody, you can get him to curse you. And so God does it. So it provides the opportunity for us to ask the question, is God capricious? Does he act on whim? So moving forward in the text today, we have, it would have been better if even in English they translated this as snake. Because that's what serpent is, but it is now freighted with a whole lot of other meanings. I have a chart here, you're not even going to be able to see it, but if you look it up on the internet, here is a graph that shows you how often the word serpent has been used from 1800 to 2010. And as you can see, it's declining in use. The snake... You know, I grew up in the pet business. My, fa- my family owned the oldest pet shop in the United States, in San Francisco, and we sold a lot of snakes. And those of you who think that snakes are slimy, they feel like a patent leather purse. They're not. And they're kind of interesting, although I think people who keep them as pets in large quantities are a little, you know, off-center. <laughs> But there it is. So the serpent tempted me and I ate. And God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now what you've just read is something in biblical studies and in the great tradition of the church with a capital T is known as the proto Think of that word. Let's all say it. proto I took a class just before I came to St. Luke's from Sausalito when I was elected rector here at CDSP, the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, on premarital counseling. And <clears throat> I was sitting in the classroom and the professor, who was the professor of pastoral theology at CDSP, one day in class, pointed to me and said, what seminary did you go to? And I said, I went to Neshota House, which is in Wisconsin, the wilds of equatorial Wisconsin. And he said, well, I guess you know all about the Proto-Evangelium, don't you? And I said, as a matter of fact, yes. Somehow in the history of interpretation, the Jews came to understand the serpent as the source of evil and Satan, passing it along to Christians who also understood this passage I read to you as predictive of Jesus and Mary. And someone at the Servant Discussion Group earlier this morning said that when they were a kid in the Roman Catholic Church, most of the statues of Mary that were in the parish churches had Mary standing on a globe and with her foot on a snake. And so Jesus, her offspring is now going to become the savior of the world and he will be crucified. So we read back into that text this, that. Now some of you may say, well, the text can't support it, but it just shows you how the interpretive processes over time go. The fancy term for what that is, is hermeneutics, right? Interpretation, that's what it means. So we have the setup now for evil or the devil in the Old Testament reading, and we come to Mark's gospel. And here, Mark it has Jesus speaking or talking about three different things. So it, 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 I feel duty-bound as a preacher. I determined in my ministry that I would never not say this stuff out of pastoral solicitude to you. But this is a sandwich deal here that we're reading. It's part of the editorial work of Mark. That's not bad and it doesn't render what we read untrue. It merely tells you something about the processes of the development of the biblical text. Because all this started out as oral tradition, didn't it? Somebody finally had to write it down. They felt compelled to do this. And so when they wrote it down, they editorialized it or they did cut and paste from the information that they received. Some written sources that predate the gospel and oral tradition which predated all of the oral sources. So here we have Jesus showing up in his hometown and the crowds are so large that they're crowding in on him and his family is coming to get him and in the course of this, somebody says, maybe his family... He's lost his mind. And so he's lost his mind because then, right after that, we get a discourse about Jesus casting out demons and the scribes saying that he's beizable, and by beizable, he casts beizable out of people. So Jesus tells us all about that. And then Jesus says something to us about the unforgivable sin. And the unforgivable sin is the sin against the Holy Spirit. Now this has a particular meaning in this particular reading. There's a lot of people, you know, who've left organized religion and belief Because it's possible in a 24-7 world to see both on the internet and other media uh, all of the sins of organized religion uh, on a real-time basis. And some people who say, you know, I was raised in a Christian tradition that absolutely uh, got me to the place where I just couldn't do this anymore. There's just no way to do it. We read in Adam and Eve about the woman being blamed. Women have been blamed, certainly by fundamental Christians, as the source of the fall with a capital F. When I was in seminary, there was a book that was written a long time ago now, in the early 1970s, by a Roman Catholic priest named George Tavard, and the book he wrote was Woman and Christian Tradition. Here's a little footnote. Have, have you any of you ever heard of Cardinal Newman? Cardinal Newman was an Anglican priest. And in 1849, he confer- converted to the Roman Catholic Church. And he made his submission to the Roman Church to a priest that was the, a member of a religious order of men called the Assumptionists. George Tavard was an Assumptionist. So does that mean he was making a lot of assumptions? He has a great line in the first two or three chapters about the creation stories and about Eve being at fault for the fall. And he says, It would be a pusillanimous tempter indeed who would have tempted the weakest link in the chain. And he goes on to say, when you, read the, when you read these stories in the original language, and he's right about this, you will see that the woman is the completion of humanity. It closes the circle. So that's why it's important to be a student of the Bible. So, the unforgivable sin... I have in my bathroom a cartoon from the New Yorker magazine. Uh, I can look at it all the time. And it's God standing at a podium, not unlike this. And there's a guy who's down there looking up at the podium. And God is going through this and he said, No, that's not a sin either. Gee, you must have worried yourself to death. (laughs) When we read passages like this, it's important to remember God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness that is at the very center of the biblical witness. And Jesus is speaking here about saying, which sounds pretty puffed up, the sin against the Holy Spirit is not listening to me, who is the agent of the Holy Spirit, here, now, in his words and in his works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And by virtue of that, you need to listen. And he believes in himself that he is conveying that message. Now, I think it's fair for us in this day and age to say that is true for Christians who have converted, who believe. I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to me except through the Father. That is true for David Brewer. It may not be true for a whole world of people out here that are yearning for the message of the gospel of Christ and that we have to offer them to be transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love, the generous impulse, and that that is the sign of being converted and what we ought to do. So don't dwell on what's the unforgivable sin. Edward Skilibex, the great Dutch Dominican, said a long time ago, tacked on to the beasable controversy is the very difficult saying about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, a saying that has played a somewhat macabre role in the history of Christian piety. People have had fantastic ideas that they have somehow inadvertently committed this unforgivable sin and that in so doing, they have condemned themselves unwittingly to everlasting damnation. My Old Testament professor used to say, well, you can believe that if you want to. But there it is. Our text has nothing to do with such fantasies Nor does it, as more recent exegetes often contended, have the purely general meaning of calling evil good and good evil. It is about Jesus' own self-understanding. And I'm a subscriber to the belief I was not taught this in seminary because I was in the fever swamps of the modern critical method. But I happen to believe that Jesus knew who he was. And those, those passages in the, in, the, in the New Testament are actually uh, uh, in some way authentic to him, what he said about himself and what he believed about himself. But now, here to me is the most important piece to this gospel. See, there's all these different sections. And the final one is his commentary on family. So people said to him, your family is there waiting for you. Your mother, your brothers, and your sister. Your sister. So some of the most reliable texts don't have sister, and others have sister, and it's a tie. So what, we, what you'll find if you read the Bible, it'll say brothers and sister, and a footnote down here, and said says some other witnesses say only brothers. So you can decide what you want to do about that. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus said, "Who is my mother, my brothers, and my sister? These are my mother and my brothers and my sister. You." It is an instantaneous redefinition of the meaning of family. Now, how does that resonate with the world in which we live in now? We have seen in our culture, in a rapid way, an organic change in the way in which people understand the nature of family and the plural ways in which family gets constituted. And if we believe in the work of the Spirit, that is something that helps us understand this more clearly. The church needs to listen to the Spirit at work in the world. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. So you and I need, in my view, need to be supporters of this and see how we can raise it up in our common life together. So Jesus says... These are my mother, my brother, and my sister. So this week, think about that. Think about who's your mother and your brothers and your sister. Remember that in the midst of all this big stuff I've talked about, that when God's judgment and God's mercy collide... God's mercy trumps God's judgment. And the biblical witness is replete with examples of that. So remember that God loves you unconditionally, accepts you unconditionally, and forgives you unconditionally. And that that should give you the freedom now to be able to extend, to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love to the world. Amen. Amen.